Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. G'day everybody, Aaron Noonan here. Welcome to the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. It is episode 80 of the V8 Sleuth Podcast, and this is our Q&A episode. Well, it's another of our Q&A episodes. There's some corker questions. We've got some answers, and I can't do it on my own. Will Dale is here as well to provide some answers. Will, welcome to you. There are some curly ones again. The Sleuthers... Find a way to give questions that make us dig for answers. Yeah, no, right? I mean, we had to dig pretty hard into the database and into the old grey matter for these ones, but it should be a fun, fun little podcast, this. Yeah, there's some good topics, some very interesting ones. We'll cover them off. If you've sent through your questions, keep on listening to make sure that you hear if your question got through. If it didn't, you can try to come up with another one for next time. We can't get through them all. We try our our very best with all the ones that do get sent through to us. Before we rip into the questions, a quick recap to vhsleuth.com.au. The website's pumping plenty of content in the last few days. Uh, breaking news, yes, or last night, uh, we've broken the story that there's been a major ownership change at the Australian Racing Group, who, of course, run TCR Australia, S5000, Touring Car Masters, the Bathurst 6-hour, the Bathurst International. Uh, we've got all the details on our website now if you haven't been across that news vhsleuth.com.au. Uh, we've also put together a story about the five biggest fines in supercars history. <laughs> uh, I think it totals about $390,000. You've taken a look at the very first super cheap auto Falcon V8 supercar and what happened to it. And we've also covered off the fact that one of our uh, friends in the industry that many of our listeners will know, Dirk Kleinsmith, the uh, longtime motorsport photographer, has decided to hang up his camera uh, at the end of this year, full-time. He'll be back for the Bathurst 500 in February. Is a bit of a farewell to the industry, and we're very lucky that uh, we are the custodians of Dirk's archive uh, of his photos from so many events from over the years. You can get more details on all of those stories on the V8 Sleuth website. That's v8sleuth.com.au. Right, Will, questions. First up, this one's from our friend Richard Poole at Bianti Model Cars. I hope you've got the answers for this one because I haven't sat there and pondered this. <laughs> he says, in terms of competitive Bathurst careers, where does Garth Tander's gap of 20 years between his first and latest win, so that's 2000 and 2020, sit in the grand scheme of things? Jim Richards surely must be on top of that list. 24 years between his first win in 78 and his last win in 2002. Is Tander second on the list? Is there more people above him? Uh, who, who's in this list and... Is anyone a challenger for Jim Richards? So, Richard, you are absolutely correct that Jim Richards has that record with 24 years between 78 and 2002. But there's another bloke who factors in here before we get to the name G Tander. Craig Lowndes. 22 years. Yeah, I I had totally forgotten that he would be a factor. But when you think, what, 96 and 2018, that's 22 years. So... Yep. If he could manage to win with, um, uh, well, I presume he drives with Jamie Wincup next year again. If he could win next year, he breaks Jim's record. Yeah, he does, which is incredible when you think of the um, the complete change in the category or in touring car racing in general between Jim's first win and his last win. 
and that Craig could go beyond that span of time, that's, that's remarkable. So where does Tanda come up on this list? Is he in the top five? Is he in the conversation? He is indeed. He's tied for P3 with another very familiar name, Steve Richards, who's also got a 20-year span between his first win and his most recent win, 98 to 2018. And Scape is next, I presume. P5, then. correct. P5, 91 okay. to 2010. 19 years between them. Of course, we're, we're counting the years, not the individual starts. Some of those guys, uh, particularly the Richards boys, did the V8s and the Super Touring um, 1000s when there was two races in the, the late 1990s. Uh, good one. I like that. Uh, Garth Tander actually popped up on our website last week. with He's got the record for the most consecutive rounds in championship history uh, with a record. I think Mark Winterbottom, we figured out, has to go four more seasons to be able to, without missing a round, of course, to be able mm. to match Garth. Uh, there's more details on our, our website if you wanted to read up on that story. Brenton Thorpe has a question, and this is not a bad one. Don't mind this. This would be tricky. Mm. You, you guys should do a commentary dream team podcast. Who you'd have as hosts, main commentators, pit lane reporters, just like your top 10 Ford and Holden drivers podcasts. I'd be most interested to hear your commentary team versus Will's. Do you reckon we should do that one day, or do you think we'll uh, upset too many people if we leave them out? Uh, both. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be really pissed if you didn't have me in your list. I think your, your job security would be struggling at that point. Well, look, I've put together a preliminary, preliminary list that's not complete. Um, I haven't worked out exactly where to slot you in just yet. Okay. I guess You're we, a need triple almost, threat. We, we almost need to build up a bit of a, uh, a rule there because you can't have 25 people. You can't pick everyone. No. So we're going to have to come up with a set list of how many hosts, how many pit reporters, how many commentators and take it from there. So I, I think, I'm not sure that it's a full podcast, Brenton, but I think it's a topic that we could cover off and we can present our findings maybe over summer. That might be a nice uh, summer yeah. topic for us to, to ponder over a, a furphy or two um, at some point. Uh, Glenn Sampson, another bit of a history question here, Will. Is Scott McLaughlin the first champion not to defend his title since Craig Lowndes in 1997? He says, apart from Robbie Francovic in 1987, has there been any other champions that didn't defend their title the next year? Now, apart from Lowndes, McLaughlin, Francovic, I think there's probably a few blokes who didn't defend it in full but did defend it partly because in those days, not everyone did every round like they do these days. Am I, am I right in that? Pretty well. Uh, you look back to 1974, reigning champion that year was Alan Moffat. Uh, he did most of the season, but he skipped the last two rounds. By that point, Brock hadn't locked Peter Brock hadn't locked up the title, um, but he was pretty close to doing so. Um, previous to that was actually the year before that when Bob Jane, the 1972 champion, started the 73 season. Started <laughs> in Tirana. Well, well, no, Tirana. no, no, no. He started in the Camaro. Remember, he had the Camaro with nah. Calder, and they they booted him. That was round two. He was in okay. Tirana at Simmons. Well, either way, he didn't do the full year, so he... To he be fair, he won the call around. He just um, didn't get to keep it. He, yeah, he had a car that they decided uh, did it, wasn't a Group C car, yeah. <laughs> basically. And uh, then the as, you'll re- as you'd read in um, Racing the Lion, Harry Firth rather generously offered him the second HDT Tirana for the third round at Sandown, but uh, history shows that didn't end up happening and BJ didn't, ac- didn't actually appear at any other rounds of the 73 title as it's the a good champion. Point. It's a good point you raise. Uh, our Racing the Lion history, it's the Holden Illustrated Motorsport History book we published earlier this year. 
It's going great guns. It's a ripping Christmas present, 400 pages, 80,000 words, 900-odd photos. We've had awesome feedback from so many of our listeners and our, our followers who've purchased the book. Uh, we've still got stock left for Christmas. If you're wondering what to get someone who's a bit of a Holden fan, it's well worth grabbing. It will keep them entertained for months on end because there's plenty of content to work their way through uh, over the course of future times. Uh, next question. I've lost uh, my before, run before we go too far, Before we go too yeah, far, yeah. there is another name along with Francis Vic Lowndes and McLaughlin didn't defend their title. Oh, the okay. Champion, David McKay wasn't there. Oh, oh, David McKay, yeah, 61. He just didn't, didn't run the next year. Exactly. And oh, given okay. there was only one race, that was it. Didn't you miss one race, miss one race and get on a list 60 years later. There you mm. go. So the next question is from Tony Ryan. Time certain races leave fans feeling shortchanged because the race gets cut by X amount of laps. What's your thoughts on just having races scheduled for a set time rather than set laps? Oh, I think that this is something that is a, and I think Tony's a regular poster about this topic. The time certain finish thing really drives fans insane. And what I think it is, is because it's, it's presenting, it's like um, walking into a shop and seeing a price tag on something for $5.90, uh, but when you go to pick it up, uh, oh, yeah, but no, it's really $6.35. Yeah, it's kind of got that feel to it as a, as a consumer, and I totally understand the frustration of race fans. The reality is that it, it's not just a – it is a cut-off time. So the, the race is presented as a lap-distance race, but in the regulations, which, of course, a race fan's not sitting there with the sup regs. That's just not, you know. I don't sit there, <laughs> watching, the AF- I, I don't sit there watching the AFL with the, the laws of the game document underneath my jacket at the MCG. Uh, so it is there. It is when the drivers of the teams are there, they know the deal. But I think it's a bad look. And I think this is the way to get around it. If you think that a... 42-lap race, you, you do your timings and you say it's going to take whatever track. I'm just making an example. It's a 70-minute race. If you've started presenting it from the start on television as a 70-minute race and we will do as many laps as we can in that time with the viewpoint that we're going to get around X laps, then if it changes because there's weather, safety cars, weird stuff, whatever happens, as a customer, I don't think you feel short-changed. It's like being in a shop and you go, advertise price, was the price I paid and I was asked for. So I can understand Tony's frustrations, and I think that would be a way to get around that feeling that fans are being shortchanged when race distances get changed, even though the race distance of time certainty is in the regulations and is a possibility. It's just not presented to them through the broadcast until it becomes a potential. What's your take? See, I like the idea of time certain races because when I was growing up, they were. Think back to the 89 championship, the 90 championship. They were one-hour timed races and there was mm. no set lap, lap distance they had to reach. Um, yep. I will say, though, that if we were to go to fully timed races, I'm sure there'd be people who'd complain about that as well. But what would you complain about? What's there to complain about? Oh, it's not laps. Oh, well, I'm sure that the, there's plenty of fans out there who'll complain about anything and everything, but... I think you get less complaints by doing that than keeping time certainty. Would I would hope be so. The way, way I'd look at it, that's for sure. Wasn't there a story that Mark Fogarty reported last year that supercars were going to change this and then nothing happened about it? They were going to get rid of time certainty and it seemed uncertain and there was still maybe time the, certain. Maybe the decision's time certain. <laughs> Stop it with the comedy. Uh, what's next? 
Matthew Lindus asks, will there be a version 2.0 of the Holden at Bathurst book up to 2021, seeing as the manufacturer won't be around after that? If not, and he has another idea for us, another book idea, how about a Cars by the Decade series using the same formatting, but for the 60s, the 70s, etc.? Uh, Matthew must be setting up a spy cam in our uh, office <laughs> here, Will, because uh, for those who don't know, Holden at Bathurst was a book we did in 2017, which was a photo of every Holden from every year's Bathurst from 1963 up to that point. So it was a limited edition run. We did 2,500 copies with numbered certificates. It's been sold out for quite some time. We don't have any more stock, and I don't know of any stockists who've got any copies left either. There might be a handful floating around out there, but you'd have to do some um, serious sleuthing. Uh, absolutely, Matthew, we would be up for doing that uh, in 2022. Once the 2021 race has been held, we'll add the last few years of cars into that book to do a, you know, kind of the full stop. Here's Holden at Bathurst every year of every car. Um, so, yeah, I, I, we have discussed it and I think we will definitely do it. In terms of the decades book, we've also discussed that. And I think that's the way that, um, we would cover off all the cars that aren't Fords or Holdens. We did a sister Ford at Bathurst book with every car from every year. That's also sold out 2,000 copies. So a decade book would be our way to cover off all the other brands of cars that aren't strong enough to stand on their own as a, uh, a book in their own right, whether it's Toyotas, BMWs, Audis, Mercedes, whatever it is over the, the course of the journey. Um, the decade system of books would be one that we would well be up for. Uh, Howard Middleton, Will, with the loss of Adelaide, potentially, well, for the moment, at least Newcastle uh, and possibly Townsville. I don't think Townsville's going anywhere, by the way, but I get mm. his drift here. Um, with the loss of Adelaide, Newcastle and New, Newcastle, Newcastle is how I would say it. Newcastle. Uh, from the, uh, basically what he's saying, are street circuits dead? I think that's a bit harsh. I mean, it, it, in this climate, it is going to be a lot harder for street circuits to be justified to receive government money, but I don't think it's out of the realms that street circuits that are viable will continue. I think Townsville, in almost especially off the back of everything that's going on now, presents as a very, um, very attractive tourist destination during the winter months for people within Australia and having a car race on there at that time of year, beaming all these beautiful pictures of warm, sunny days, clear blue skies, um, is probably something that Queensland's tourism markets, given it can't market, can't really market to people outside of Australia at the moment, it's probably going to be something that they'll be interested in. So I think that race is actually probably a lot safer than it might have been 12 months ago. But yeah, I don't think I, street races are dead. I don't think they're dead, but they are, a, they are very much an endangered species. The simple fact is they cost a lot of money the bubble hasn't burst, but it has deflated somewhat. So if Adelaide's gone, if Gold Coast was to go, I can see that there'll be a push that we need to learn again. So if you look at it this way, over time, as a sport, and I mean supercars, really, mm. as, the, as the preeminent top category, it's had to wean itself off cigarette money. The alcohol money came and went. It's weaned itself off manufacturer money, which for a time was big ticket. You just look at the Ooh. photos of Holden and Ford windscreen banners on every car. So we've constantly found a way to wind ourselves off things over time as those different um, sources of funding have dried up. Government money is going to go the same way. For, for all the money that governments are spending on helping keeping businesses running and all sorts of things, 
they're constantly going to be growing the tightrope of investment of money in an event versus investment in schools and hospitals and uh, all the other things. You'll have politics and elections thrown in the middle of it all, depending on who's trying to get power or who's got it. So uh, it's going to be hard. So I think as a, as a category and as a sport, and I've always been a big fan of street tracks in terms of what they do for cities, what they do for bringing the casual fan. I've, I've never always felt like some people say that all that money should go into permanent facilities. I do agree that some of it should be channeled there and we need to support the permanent facilities because now we're going to rely on them a bit more over the course of upcoming years. Mm. But I, I think they're not dead, Howard, but they're, uh, they've certainly copped a few body blows and a few flesh wounds. That There's no doubt about that. Um, probably a good opportunity too. In terms of street tracks, we've got a ripping book out at the moment uh, that we haven't published, but we're, we're selling it here in Australia with a distributor of uh, the Wellington Street Races, which I love watching that as a kid growing up over the years, uh, the touring cars running around the waterfront in Wellington. And, and an author over there in New Zealand has put together, Richard McGee's put together a book that um, is out now. You can buy it at our online bookshop, which is book, uh, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. Recaps all the races from over the years, lots of rare photos that I've never seen before, results. Uh, it's a great little uh, addition to the motorsport book collection. If you're a, a touring car fan or if you, you like that 80s and 90s era, it's definitely one to grab that won't break the bank. Uh, Dean Hayes is next up. Can you do a podcast with Todd Kelly? I'd like to hear his opinion on why Car of the Future seems to have failed and what could have, what could have been done from supercars to get the Nissan on par with the Holden and the Ford. I'd love to do a podcast with Todd, but I don't reckon Todd would want to do a podcast with too many people. I don't, reckon he's got it. I don't reckon he's got an hour and a half to sit down. He's a busy boy. Yeah. Which is an absolute shame because, like, putting aside all the stuff that you, you just suggested, Dean, which he may not necessarily want, want or be in a position to talk about, his career, just talking about his own career, is, would be fascinating enough. I mean, this is a guy who was, when Mark Scape owned the whole racing team, Todd was probably quicker than him at various yeah, times and was probably the lead guy in that team at the time. 20, Bathurst 20... That was a 24-hour winner off the top of my head? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. in the red car. I can never yeah, quite yeah. remember who was who, who was who in each car each year. Oh, he, he was Brock. still... I knew which one he, he was in. He, he still played the part of Todd Kelly. He was still Todd. <laughs> As <laughs> himself. Yes. <laughs> oh, I agree, though. Oh, there's lots to talk about with Todd. And, of course, I really want to do a sit-down with Rick, but obviously in the wake of his news, he's, all these guys have been on the road all for, you know, the guts mm. of the year. And I think they all deserve some time off from doing all this sort of stuff. So I will approach the topic with them at some point. And hopefully, Dean, we can have a chat to Todd because I, I agree with Will. There's plenty to talk about there. There's, there's no doubt about that at all. Uh, Alan Milne, can you please put up a family tree, get your ruler out here and your pencil and your squiggly <laughs> lines, of all the racing entitlements contracts, that's the franchises, where they started and where they are now, example, GSR to Tickford, et cetera, et cetera. Um, It'd be good We'd fun. Be here if, if that, is that a, your idea of fun on a Saturday night? I wouldn't do it on a Saturday night. Oh, <laughs> I, uh, That'd be I a long-term guess. progressive project. That's uh, not something I don't think we could see. I, I think here. that would be... Uh, look, I'm a racing nerd as, as far as they come, but I think I'd draw the line at franchise, family trees. That might be a you job, not me. Yeah, I'd be happy to... Um, progressively put that together because I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm interested in all that sort of stuff. It's I find it interesting to see where all the franchises have, have gone over years. And because there are gaps where I wasn't probably following the sport as closely as I do now. And I just 
yeah, I'd like to fill those gaps in to know where everything went and how everything came to be how it is now. I think I'd like to read, and I have read some of them, whenever there's been a blue over franchises and it's ended up <laughs> in court, the court documents are stunning. They're great. They're great. Yeah, yeah. Really, you, really you um, informative. You, you learn a lot of info in those. So, Alan, it's not a no from me. It's a yes eventually from Will, I think. Yeah. Is <laughs> yes. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah, and, and Don't hold your breath, but eventually. No, no. And, it, and he mentions about uh, GSR obviously selling to, well, it was Ford Performance Racing at the time. It became ProDrive. It's now... Tickford Racing, and they've kept that number five uh, all the way through. And, of course, uh, you can actually read, Glenn talks about the the whole selling of the team and the creation and driving for FPR and some of the struggles and headaches. Uh, in the new book, Cedo, the official racing history of Glenn Seaton, going like hotcakes. Ford fans are grabbing this one for Christmas. Uh, again, it's on our website, bookshop.vhsleuth.com.au, and it's got the histories of all of GSR and FTR's race cars and what they did over the course of the journey. But... Uh, uh, he's done a super job, no doubt about it, Glenn. So grab yourself a copy of that one. Uh, who's next? Darren Jones. I'll let you handle the new ball on this one. So Darren asks, well, Darren says, I was watching the 1978 Hardy Ferrado 1000. I presume he means the DVD that was released by CMS Marketing Services that's, I believe, in our book, the V8 Sleuth bookshop. Correct weight, correct weight. Now you're doing the plugs. Jeez, look at well, you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, team player. Uh, during the race, the commentators start talking about the performance index system and Darren's asking what is it and what it's all about. Now, I'd forgotten that this was a thing. So back in the day, there are all these different prizes you could get that you don't hear about now because the whole franchise system we have in supercars, but at Bathurst, there'd be like prize money for the outright winner, prize money for pole, prize money for leading laps, all these different prizes that you could win. And one of them for a brief period of time was the index of performance. It was inspired by the same prize at the Le Mans 24-hour, and it's kind of like um, the Sydney to Hobart yacht race where there's a line honours winner and then there's a handicap winner. So, well, Index of Performance is basically a handicap system to allow smaller cars or smaller capacity, smaller class cars that put in a phenomenal performance to be rewarded. So the way it worked the field was divided into engine capacity classes and the number of laps, the completed number of laps of those classes over the previous five years was used to generate an average performance figure and the car that exceeded their class's average across all the classes of the race by the most won the index. And for outright, because it was based on laps, if you were the outright winner, of course, you'd just do the same as the previous five years. So they worked out race time as the basis for the outright class. And having said all this about giving the um, little guys a chance, who do you reckon won the index of performance the first two uh, years? I, I'm going to reckon it was the guy that won outright, Brock and Jim Richards. Peter Brock and Jim Richards won in 78 and 79. And it was $5,000 for each of those victories. So not exactly small change back in the day. Um, it was also awarded in 1980 and 1981, but I haven't been able to find the winners of those. Uh, and it was gone by 1982. So um, Lost in the annals of history, somewhere back there, over there yeah. in the corner, in a if filing I, cabinet. If I ever find it, I'll let you know, Darren. Okay, okay, good man. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment, but I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now you might know their name and you might recognise their logo, but did you know that Timken bearings are used in the centrepiece of one of the most stunning stadiums in the world of sport, 
the $2 billion, yes, billion dollar Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta features a retractable roof that is a work of incredible engineering. It features eight triangular roof panels, or pedals as the designers call them, that slide open and close in the same way that a camera shutter does. Each pedal weighs almost 500 metric tonnes and when the roof is closed, each pedal cantilevers over 60 metres from the outer edge of the stadium. Now despite the weight, the size and the complexity of the design, the roof can be closed in just over seven minutes and opened in just over eight, with Timken's tapered roller bearings used to ensure each pedal moves smoothly. The stadium's home to the Atlanta Falcons NFL team and the Atlanta United Major League Soccer team, and in 2019, it hosted the crown jewel of American football, the Super Bowl. We'll bring you more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast through the course of the year. Now, it's back to the podcast. Matthew Davis up next. With the Adelaide Street Circuit now unlikely to come back in the short term, should supercars look at Malawa to maintain two events in South Australia? Uh, can't see it happening. Facilities and venues just not up to the standard that a, a modern supercars championship would require. And uh, they're going to the bend and the Shaheen zone both, so they'll go to the bend, I would have thought. But how good would championship races at Malawa? Oh, be I, I, that's different. That would be different phenomenal. Question. Different question there completely. We won't be going back to Malawa to do main game rounds, but geez, mm. it'd be good to send a current car or a couple of cars around there for a demo or something somewhere to, uh, to see what they look like. Having done, ah, what, a couple of years of the Konica series there in the early, two, early to mid-2000s, I went to some of those rounds. Um, the, the Kumo series in more recent times ran there, I think last in about 2013, 14, somewhere around there. So I think it'd be, uh, it'd be great to see a modern supercar, uh, in anger thrown around there with someone really up on the wheel driving it to see what sort of a lap time it'd do actually. Maybe we could have, um, pre-qualifying there for the next band. No, don't be <laughs> silly. That would never, <laughs> never happen again. Yes. Again. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Did happen once. 2002 story on the website. That wasn't a deliberate plug that was just the way the conversation drove but you did a nice little piece a while back on that Malala pre-qualifying in 2002 when there was too many cars for the Clipsal 500 and no extra track time at Adelaide so they had pre-qualifying at Malala during the week. Uh, Ian Montgomery has the next question and I think this is a bit flavoured along the lines of what we've had in previous Q&As. Who's raced in the Bathurst 1000 most often without getting a podium finish? So by the numbers, it's Bruce Stewart, veteran privateer, who made 26 starts and had a best finish of fifth place in 1988, but he had a heap of class wins, so he had made trips to the podium. So by our numbers, it's fellow Sydney privateer, Graham Moore, who made 24 starts in the great race with a best place of seventh in 1986. Do you want to try to say that again? Because it'll be quite funny. I think. I think I'd. I think I'd be a better chance of trying to say Michelle Delcour four times yeah. really quickly after about eight beers. <laughs> Jeez. All right. Beer one. Yeah. Tip yeah. it in. Tip it in. Uh, Grant. I'm not even going to try to pronounce his surname because I'll murder it and get it wrong. And Carlberg. Uh, yeah. What you said. That one. <laughs> yeah. That's him. You always ask the drivers, but are you guys memorabilia and paraphernalia collectors as well? Will, are you a collector? If so, what do you collect? Uh, I used to be quite the collector and I still therefore have a bit of a collection at Mum's Place up in North Queensland. 
um, of a whole heap of random stuff, a lot, lot of books. Um, I used to record a lot of races off TV, so I had a heap of videotapes, um, most of which, I, or a chunk of which I've had to throw out now because they get mouldy when you don't use them, even in North Queensland. <laughs> um, have a lot of model cars, have a lot of programs, but I've kind of rolled that back a lot in the past 10 years because it, well, there's a reason why it's still at mum's place. It's because I don't have room for it and don't really use it. So um, at some point I'll have to reconsider what, um, what I'm keeping. If you somehow manage to bring some of that back from North Queensland down south to your current location, would your wife be upset? There's no, there's no room at our current location, so I don't think it's an issue. Oh, you're safe then. You're safe. Yeah. Then. If anything, um, the V8 Sloop off, office would be in, would well, be in a bit of trouble. Yeah. Uh, well, we've got room, and uh, it would be among like-minded things here. So, uh, yeah, I, I've never really been a hardcore memorabilia collector. I mean, in terms of the same things as you, mm. model cars. I've, I've, like you, I've probably wound back right back in the last few years. Uh, simply because of room, um, I don't have anything at home of my motor racing stuff. It's all at work because it's a logical place for it to be. And uh, I have a home office, but I don't really have any racing stuff in it. There's a handful of books there, but everything's at work because we're, you know, we're constantly requiring it here for all the work we do. So yeah, magazines, programs, but our race suits, I've probably started to acquire a few of those along the way at different opportunities and different times. And I've shared some of those on socials over the years and in recent times. So um, got some ones that are either uh, good. You know, I've got one of Casey Stoner's Red Bull Triple Eight suits. I've got a Steve Richards Bathurst winning Red Bull 2015 suit, a Sebastian Bourdais Vodafone suit. You've got Bairdo's um, Bathurst not quite winning suit from 97. Yeah, I do. The BMW factory suit that he wore on the podium and a bunch of other races, 97. I've got that one from Bairdo signed, which is a, a cool addition. I got one of Dario Franchitti's Jim Beam DJR suits uh, from the Gold Coast 600 when he came out and drove uh, for DJR. Um, yeah, there's a few other bits and pieces. A bit of Wing Cup, a bit of Will Davison. Um, uh, Craig Lowndes, 2012 Bathurst, the, the HDT Vodafone retro livery. Got one of those suits. So, um, yeah, just had little opportunities along the way to do deals with people and teams and drivers and uh, a few of those hang in the office here as well. So that's probably... I've never... Helmets is another thing that I, it'd be nice to do and nice and have, but it's a whole nother price range. And I think helmets are a bit more personal to drivers. So not many of those get out. And I, I think it's important that they, uh, they keep them because uh, that's their real ID. That's them. Whereas the race suits that the team. So um, yeah, definitely. I'm not a car part kind of guy though. Panels or yeah, stuff like that. Uh, I just got nowhere to put it. I, I'm, you Look, know, I'd take I like a DJR Sierra, Sierra wheel. I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't, okay. Probably wouldn't say yeah. no. I just wouldn't know what to do with it or where to put it. It's where to put it. It's usually the, the yeah. big issue. But uh, we do know uh, some close personal friends at the National Motor Racing Museum at Mount Panorama. So should you ever have anything that you don't know where to put it, I'm sure we can ring Brad Owen and the team at the museum, who are great friends of ours, to uh, give it a home. And I have offered to give Brad a few things. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I yeah. hope he didn't turn you down. I hope he didn't turn you down. No. Uh, Brad Walker, is there a chance that the Grand Prix race weekend could extend to Supercar's own weekend race, maybe a week after to utilise the already placed facilities and become the new first race of the year? Uh, short answer, no. Long answer, no. <laughs> but here's something for you. I've heard on the grapevine 
for the weekend that the Grand Prix is scheduled for 2021, there's a chat going around that Sandown has been booked for that weekend. So I presume that should the Grand Prix not happen for whatever reason, that I would presume that that means that supercars would then just transfer and race at Sandown on that weekend. Look, that's, that just, that's just Makes sensible. Sense. If you're going to have Good a backup. A, it's smart. After everything that's happened this year, it's smart to have a plan B, especially when you figure the first international motorsport event that Australia usually has each year, World Superbike Championship, is not coming out in February like it normally does, and that's instead going to be an Australian Superbike and TCR round. Um, makes total sense. Mm. We'll see, I guess. Yeah, but uh, Brad's question, uh, nice theory in terms yeah. of supercars, uh, but not a, a scenario where you could have two weekends in a row and have all those roads closed and infrastructure mm -hmm. and uh, it just wouldn't be viable. Adam Blackman, he's got another one. He's a regular listener. Uh, which car, in your opinion, in the Group A era had the greatest potential but never quite reached its full potential from any of the classes? <laughs> Maserati by Turbo. Yeah, as Thomas would say... Shitbox. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. We we loved the Thomas Mesera episode. And I tell you what, it was a few episodes ago and I am still getting emails and messages on Facebook from people who have just caught up with it and just listened and thoroughly enjoyed it. It is our, it's not our biggest clicked podcast, most downloaded, but it is our greatest in terms of the level of feedback and messages and notes that we've received. It's been outstanding. So glad that everyone enjoyed it. Everyone enjoyed it more than Thomas enjoyed his driver the by turbo. Um, oh yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. I, I reckon the uh, the other car that springs to mind for me is the Toyota Supra Turbo. See, On that paper, car was... it sounded and looked like it should be something special, but it just never worked out. Too heavy, not enough power, and too heavy. Yeah, need a more that. grunt. Need a more grunt. We might skip ahead here to Michael Gray. Uh, what was the first touring car race meeting the Sleuth? And I'm including you in this, as you are mm. um, part of Team Sleuth. Uh, that you attended. What's the first touring car race you turned up at? Uh, Sandown Touring Car Round, 1995. 95, in the wet? Yeah, in the wet. And, it, yeah, it was, um, it'd been lovely weather up until Sunday morning. And mum, dad and I got on the train, or got on the train at Heidelberg and travelled all the way into Sandown. Well, not quite all the way into Sandown. The um, line between Springvale and Sandown was under maintenance, so we had to get off at Springvale wait for a bus and could hear the um, superbikes out on track uh, while we we're standing at the bus stop and then, yeah, finally arrive and, yeah, it was good. Mm. Ah, memories. Well, Sandown yeah. is mine as well, but it was uh, 1986 Castrol 500. So, Very good. Uh, won by George Fury and Glenn Seaton in a Peter Jackson 1-2, uh, third place to Alan Grice and Graham Bailey in the Chickadee Commodore. There you go. Uh, Corey State is our resident food expert. Does pineapple belong on pizza, Will? I have no issue with pineapple on pizza. I think it's quite nice. I will oh, say... I'm, I'm with you. I will say that if I'm making a pizza, I don't put pineapple on it just because I like a capriciosa-style pizza and um, receive the pineapple separately. Uh, I, I'm all up for pineapple on pizza. I will put it on a pizza that I make as well. So, yeah. No problem with pineapple on pizza. Uh, I love that Corey sends us food questions. It just takes us away from the seriousness of car racing yeah. every now and then. Uh, usually, though, uh, as we record this podcast, every time I read one of his questions, I get hungry. 
I started to look at my <laughs> desk here at work wondering what have I got hidden away in the drawer? What's Probably not a tin of pineapple. <laughs> no, no. Um, oh, hang on. For those wondering, uh, chicken crimpy shapes, muesli bars and apricot, dried apricots. There you go. For those wondering at home. Uh, oh, a couple of questions to go. We're nearly there, mate. Uh, Jared Midson, with the announcement that Kim Jones is stepping aside at Brad Jones Racing, how big has his influence been on the team's success? Uh, I think it's hard to put put exact to under to undersell just how crucial Kim's been to that team's success. I mean, the brothers are a double act and have been for a long time. Brad, the gun driver, and Kim behind the scenes running the show. You think of all the success that they've had over the years in such a wide range of categories, and I'm hard pressed to think of another team that's achieved what they've achieved. Oh, in terms of the split across NASCAR, yeah. Oscar, two-litre production cars and, and supercars, uh, yeah, there, there's no other team that's done that sort of a portfolio. The only other one I can probably think of over the journey is GRM, um, yeah. who've been you know, a winner in some way or shape or form in everything that they've had a run in at different times. But I think Kim has actually been stepped away from the business for a little time anyway in recent times before the official retirement um, scenario so he hasn't been as prominent or as involved in the last few years but you think about the strategies he's called to help win races over the years the money that he's hunted in boardrooms around the country and those boys brad and kim they have worked their ass off for years chasing deals making things happen keeping that place funded and on the grid and if you added up how many millions of dollars worth of deals he's uh, put together over the years or convinced people to part with their money or put their sticker on his car uh, it would be pretty large. So I think, Jared, that Kim's influence has been very, very big on BJR, which, by the way, if you go back through time, it wasn't always called Brad Jones Racing. It was B&K Racing for Brad and Kim Racing before... Oh, I didn't know that. B, B, yeah, before BJR as a, as a name. I don't think BJR was registered as a business till about 1994. And before that, in the, the Thunderdome era, they were effectively, technically, B&K Racing. Of course, the, the Cooper Tools car, Oscar, the... The Castrol Commodore, there's a time when they didn't have any sponsorship on their, their Oscar and then they had the, the Kmart, Tire and Auto, NASCAR and, yeah, all sorts of stuff. They've, they've had a few cars over the years, actually, when it came to the Oscar and NASCAR, so uh, maybe a, a chassis story or two to do there over the journey. I love this question next from Brad Walker, and this is our uh, Castrol question of the week. And, of course, with Castrol, uh, it's more than just about it's liquid engineering is the vibe of it all. It's liquid engineering. That's what Castrol is. Uh, whether you're a rider or a driver, whatever you are, it is Castrol that you've got to choose. It, a nice segue too from the Castrol Oscar, which I hadn't even looked at the next question. But Brad says, why did the series change from being called V8 supercars to just supercars? And I'll add to this, this is Aaron's question. Why don't they just change it back? I, t- I totally agree that it should just go back to V8 supercars from just purely from a writer's and a technical perspective as a writer, V8 was a lot easier to put into a short headline than supercars. And that, and it was also a much better search term than supercars. Um, but for a hot, but that's for very selfish reasons for why I'd like it to be called V8 supercars again. Uh, Brad, to answer your question, it was changed from V8 supercars to just supercars in, I think, 2016, uh, when the sport was looking towards a future where it wasn't necessarily just V8 engines. I mean, you think back a couple of years, Holden had their V6 twin turbo program and there were suggestions that other manufacturers would be looking at non-eight-cylinder 
motivation, shall we say, um, and as a way of getting other manufacturers who don't have a V8 engine into the category. Uh, now, of course, we are not going in that direction, and the only two engines on the grid are both V8s and probably will be for the time being, so I'd love to see the name come back. Uh, I, I actually saw Paul Morris made comment about this on yeah. socials in the last few weeks. Totally agree with him. It was something that I was already thinking. And over the course of Bathurst in particular, because that race generates so much non-traditional media, people who don't normally write about or cover supercars during the course of the year, you see news reports on the, the nightly news or on website reports or newspapers. They all refer to it as V8 supercars. Yeah. So. The, the education process of the name change clearly hasn't gone well enough. In the hearts and minds, they're V8s and they're V8 supercars. So I don't think it would be a bad thing to re-embrace the past when they next change their logo, their name, whatever they do, just add the V8 back on. It's part of the DNA. I, I think that they should have kept it anyway, up until the point that there was going to be an actual uh, different engine on the grid and it didn't happen. So I feel like it was kind of a change that wasn't required, but, uh, Brad, that's the reason why, and that's the reasons why we reckon it should go back because it's better for Will when he types it, and it's easier for him to do searches. It's all about Will. Basically. In short, in short, Tony Cochran was right. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Isaac Edwards, do you see DJR up the front next year? Uh, short answer: Yes. But what do you deem as up the front? Winning most of the races, winning some races, contending for race wins. Where do you think they fall? I think contending for race wins is the absolute least of what they'd be expecting to do internally, despite despite the sort of measured approach you might take into a year where you've got two completely new drivers. But I think they'd, they'd expect to at least come out of the year with a few wins, and I don't think that's an unreasonable expectation. And that's where yeah. I expect to see them. And you think back to the start of this year, Davo was on fire in mm, his one yeah. race meeting. In a <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. They'll be up the front. I don't think they'll be winning like they did with McLaughlin. No. You know, that was just the one of those scenarios where driver, team, car, put it all together and you get that um, amazing run. I don't think anyone's going to have that going. But, you know, out McLaughlin, out Coulthard, in Davison, Di Pasquale, it's pretty good ins. Um, youth and experience both uh, performed so, yeah, I think they'll be up there and in the mix. Uh, will they win the championship? Will they win more races than Triple Eight? Not sure, but that's the beauty of it because it gives us a whole pile of unanswered questions to go into a, a new championship season with. But, uh, yeah, I think they'll be up the front and they're up the front at the National Motor Racing Museum because that DJR exhibition is continuing at Mount Panorama. There's a bunch of Dick's old cars there. There's some... I think John Bowers even loaned one of his old Shell Sierra race suits as well. <laughs> he I saw it in recent times. So if you're in the area, uh, head into the National Motor Racing Museum. It is, of course, at the bottom of Conrod Strait at Mount Panorama Bathurst. It's open every day bar Tuesdays. Jump on the museum's Bathurst website to double-check the times and, and days that it's open and, and follow them on Facebook too because they're always posting about uh, cars that are arriving or leaving. There's always something going on at, at the museum at Mount Panorama. So, uh, don't miss out on that one. They've done some really good exhibitions in the last few years, and I'm sure they've got some more cool stuff planned for, for 2021. Uh, well, Christmas is coming, and we should remind everyone too that if you just don't know what you want, I mean, I don't know what I ever want for Christmas or birthdays, and those buying for me ask and I don't know. So 
uh, gift card is the easy way out of it, I reckon, for lots of these things, particularly Christmas. We do have V8 Sleuth Bookshop gift cards available in the online store. So if you jump on the website, which is bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au, you can give a gift card for Christmas in 2020 and let the recipients sort out what the hell they want to buy and make <laughs> it their problem. Make it their problem. And if you, want a, if you do want a specific amount that's not currently on the website, get in touch. We can sort that out for you. $1,000, $2,000, $5,000. I'm sure we can arrange such things. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, we've got some really good chats coming up in the next few weeks. We won't go into who we've got lined up, but we've got a, a little bit of a plan for our uh, end of year slash Christmas slash summer shows. We're going to take a look at some classic cars. We're going to look at some more category-based stuff. We've got some sit-down chats coming. Uh, now that things in Victoria are a bit nicer with COVID, uh, hopefully sometime soon you and I will be able to sit across one another from a, in, in a desk situation and see <laughs> one another and yeah. use the microphones that have been sitting here just crying out to be used for the last uh, six or seven months. And we can go on the road a little bit and have a chat to a few guys uh, at their places of work and workshops and the like and put some in the can for over the course of summer to keep everyone podcasted up right through the course of, uh, of the end of December and into early January because racing is going to kick off early in January when you look at the, the calendars for what's been announced for the TCR series mm. they're, they're racing down in Tassie there's Phillip Island as you mentioned with the Australian Superbikes at the start of February um, as we record this we're still waiting on a supercars calendar but our, our birdies tell us that it's late February that the first round at Bathurst so you look at that first part, just the first two months of the new calendar year, uh, we're going to be in a racing a lot earlier than we normally are. So uh, we'll keep you busy with the podcast in between to just bridge that gap from December through into January and we can get racing again and uh, we'll keep the podcast flowing. But like always, send in your requests of who you'd love us to talk to. We've got a bit of a list already. Uh, we'd love uh, more of your feedback. So jump on the website. Send us a note to the contact page on vhsleuth.com.au. Get in touch on socials, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We're in all those places. Thanks to those who also voted for us too in the Australian Podcast Awards. We didn't win a cracker, but we had some people <laughs> vote for us. And um, we know people out there like what we do. So we appreciate everybody who took the time to, to put in a vote. Um, there's so many great sports and motorsport podcasts out there. So we know that you've all got plenty of um, options to listen to and we're really thrilled that those who elect to have a listen to us over the course of every week appreciate what we do. So thanks for listening and thanks for putting in a vote or three or six for us over the course of the last few weeks. Uh, I think that's us done. Will, anything else to add? No, that's that's it. Thanks for your questions and... Go away. No, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> leave, me, leave me alone. What was it Andy Raymond said on the last podcast? Shut No, no, let's not say that. No, don't say yeah. that. Don't say that. Don't say that. He did say, be there. So yes. we've been there. That's been episode 80 of the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timkin. Tune in next week for episode 81 with a very special guest. We will reveal all as we get closer. Chat to you in a week. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds, you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.